Welcome, everybody, to the Winning Momentum Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Sinclair. Tonight, in a rare Sunday evening shooting of this show, and hopefully we'll get the episode out early because it needs to be timely, we're going to talk about the fascinating story and context of Silicon Valley Bank and its receivership and blow up in basically two days. It just all happened so fast. So Silicon Valley uh, uh, Bank, and I'm going to remind you, I'm shooting this right now on March 12th, a Sunday evening. I'm going to try to have it out to you for Monday morning. We normally release our podcast Tuesday mornings, but I wanted to sort of jump on this hot story and give you some observations and some thoughts and some of the interesting debate going back and forth uh, that's relevant to businesses, to treasury management within businesses, even to individuals and their banking in the U.S. in particular, although I will tell you that this is a global issue with banking systems, and it also brings in uh, politics. It brings in uh, the value of ESG investing, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, it has all sorts of little nuances to the story and and politics, which make it fascinating. So just for some context, Silicon Valley Bank, which as the name might suggest, was a Silicon Valley uh, bank, but it has uh, it operates in many countries. I know there's branches in Canada, I believe, not retail branches, but you know businesses can open up at Silicon Valley Bank or at least do loans at Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe in Canada, they don't take deposits. I'm not sure about that. I know that there's a UK angle to this and probably some European exposure. Bottom line is Silicon Valley Bank or SVB is America's 16th largest bank or was last week America's 16th largest bank with some $175 billion in deposits or assets, $175 billion. It sounds like a lot of money, but for context, okay, and I know that a third to 50% of my audience is Canadian. For context, the Royal Bank of Canada is $1.5 trillion in assets. That's huge. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank is large, potentially, but not huge, $175 billion, okay? So it experienced last week what some might call a 21st century style, old-fashioned bank run. You remember the movies from the old days, the pictures of people running up to the bank and they're trying to get their cash out because they think the bank's going under? That's what happened in a 21st century sense to Silicon Valley Bank last week. Last Friday, customers tried to withdraw about $42 billion or a quarter, all one day, well, two days really, a quarter of all deposits where uh, customers were trying to withdraw uh, last Thursday, Friday. So that was a bank run for two days. Towards the end of Friday, the FDIC stepped in, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, I believe that's what that acronym stands for, and they appointed a receiver and just shut down the bank, okay? And some question on uh, Twitter and other social media platforms when people are discussing this issue, what the hell is the mandate of FDIC? Uh, what was their plan? They just shut that down. Nobody has any information. Well, I'll tell you what their plan was. It was it was a uni plan. It had one goal, and the goal was to stop the debits. What does that mean? The goal was to stop everybody from trying to withdraw their money all at once, just to put a freeze to things, send in the regulator, which is what FDIC is, send in the regulator, or, or partially is, send in the regulator, uh, take over the assets, and have an orderly liquidation and wind up. And so as of Friday, everybody's money was uh, was seized. Now, when I say everybody's money, what does that mean? Does that mean it's a bunch of, bunch of individuals uh, in Silicon Valley or wherever there are locations of Silicon Valley Bank? No, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies that also bank at Silicon Valley Bank. In fact, someone had tweeted out a partial list. I don't have the names of these companies. They just had the symbols. I didn't bother looking it up for you. But the point being that this bank serviced tech companies and particularly tech companies that were venture capital and private equity backed because the Silicon Valley Bank, when a large part of their business plan was was working with sponsor relationships. So in other words, if you were a venture capital fund and you wanted to put a bunch of money 
into this tech startup or junior tech company that you hoped was going to be worth billions someday, then the bank would do an operating line or lend money to that company based on the fact that the equity was coming in from the from the venture capital. And that's a way to provide more money to the borrower, to the tech company, um, and, and to increase the returns to the venture capitalists. Because basically, the target asset, the, the, the tech company gets more cash, um, but it doesn't all have to come out of the, the venture capitalist pocket. Okay, so for example, a company called Circle, uh, symbol USDC, at $3.3 billion sitting in this bank. If you have $3.3 billion of cash exposure at one bank, you need to rethink your treasury policies, okay? Uh, symbol BILL, $670 million. Uh, BlockFi, $247 million. Symbol ROKU, $487 million. And it goes on and on. You get the flavor. There's some serious companies with serious cash sitting at this bank. And all of this money uh, was frozen and is subject to the receivership appointed by FDIC. Now, does that mean they're going to lose all their money? No, they might lose a chunk of their money. In fact, they're not going to. I'll get to that later. But uh, all things being equal, they could have lost uh, some of their money. They could have lost all of their money, depending on how the liquidation in the receivership goes. Let me give you some context before we come back to that point. In January 2020, January 2020, so you're thinking back, you know, pre-COVID, Silicon Valley Bank had $55 billion in customer deposits on its balance sheet, $55 billion. And by 2022, so two years later, <clears throat> well, that's three years later, so uh, 2021, 22, three years later, the number had exploded to $186 billion. So from $55 billion to $186 billion in, what's that? That's uh, three and change times. Uh, uh, you know, tripled, more than tripled its asset size in those three years. And the deposits that came in were often from initial public offerings from SPAC deals, okay, which is also a way to go public. So just consider it companies going public. Um, and when they go public, the venture capital fund or the private equity fund gets a bunch of money gets a bunch of money from the public offering. And then what does it do with that money? Well, it deposits that money into its bank account, which happens to be at Silicon Valley Bank. And so uh, SVB, according to the Wall Street Journal, banked almost half, almost half of all IPO proceeds in the last two years. Most startups in the tech space, almost all of them had a relationship with this bank. In fact, many of them were forced to have a relationship with this bank because their equity partners, the venture capital funds, the private equity funds, were relying on that special sponsor relationship with, uh, with Silicon Valley Bank to help increase their returns of their investment, which is what this leverage does. And uh, so you tell your, yeah, I'm going to, you tell this potential company or this company that you're potentially going to invest in, I will invest equity in this company, but you've got to open up your accounts at Silicon Valley Bank, and they're going to lend you this amount of money. And between the two of us, the equity and the debt, you got the cash you need to operate your business. So Silicon Valley Bank moves up to this 180 odd billion dollars, $186 billion uh, of capital. And that's a lot of new money to put to work, $131 billion they have to put to work. And some of that was lent out, but with soaring stock prices back uh, in the COVID days, if you can remember that, soaring stock prices, um, near zero interest rates, no one needed to borrow that money. Nobody was looking for excessive debt back then. And so Silicon Valley Bank was unable to initiate this $131 billion in new loans. When a bank gets deposits in, it has to do something with them. That's how it makes its money. It, it you know, makes money on its, on its investments and its loan portfolio. And one would hope that those investments in the loan portfolio pay more than the bank has to pay out to the people, to, to the depositors, right? And so that's what a bank does for a living in part. And so the bank couldn't put this money out. Silicon Valley Bank couldn't put the money out. So what did they do? They bought some uh, 
they took this new capital and they put it into higher yielding long-term government bonds. So they, instead of buying short-term government paper or treasuries, which were paying out, I think, a quarter of a percent at the time, they bought a bunch of long-term paper, which was paying out more than a quarter of a percent. So they enhanced their yield. And they also put $80 billion into 10-year mortgage-backed securities. Remember mortgage-backed securities and the problem that may have caused uh, in 2008? So uh, $80 billion into 10-year mortgage-backed securities that paid 1.5% yield instead of a quarter of a percent. And as the Wall Street Journal points out, it seems that everyone on the face of the earth, everyone, except for the SVB management, new interest rates were heading up. What happens when interest rates heads up? If you own some long-term paper, 10% paper, and you bought that, and it pays, say, 1.5% as these uh, mortgage-backed securities were paying, <clears throat> and that's fixed, okay? And if you if you buy those in a 0.25% market, which is what treasuries are, and then the, the treasuries start yielding more, well, then the relative value of your mortgage-backed securities are worth less, right? If you hang on to those mortgage-backed securities for that 10-year period, you get all your money out plus your 1.5%. But if you want to sell them into the market, they're not as interesting as they used to be when you paid for them because the comparable, the treasuries have gone up. The interest rate has gone up. You understand? So, so they bought all this long-term fixed paper, fixed return paper, um, and it seems to be, as the Wall Street Journal says, that they were the only ones in the face, face of the earth who didn't know that interest rates were going to go up, and therefore their assets were going to decrease in value. Federal Reserve Chair uh, Jerome Powell had been shouting this from the mountaintops uh, forever before they started raising rates, and yet... Silicon Valley Bank froze uh, and kept their business as usual, borrowing short-term from depositors and lending out long-term. And then they didn't hedge the interest exposure because you could have done something different or they could have done something different to hedge that interest rate. And so that was their problem number one. And their problem, So they have short-term borrowings that they need to pay on and long-term assets, which is what gives them the revenue. And all of a sudden, they're upside down. And the bear market from an IPO perspective, remember their money comes from IPOs uh, and from from capital market, from trading in general, stock markets in general. Um, and around January 2022, 14 months ago, we hit a bear market uh, for markets. And that means there's less IPOs, there's less cash flow coming in. And as the Wall Street Journal points out, it shouldn't have taken more than a year for management of Silicon Valley Bank to figure out that credit markets would tighten, so there's not as much debt or equity or just cash in general available, and that the to to tech companies and that the IPO market would dry up, and therefore what companies would need to spend more money on their salary, on their cloud services, on their leases, whatever they need to spend more of their own money by withdrawing the deposits. Silicon Valley Bank didn't figure that out. Remember, all of their cash is tied up in this long-term paper, and if you went to sell that into the market, they would be taking a significant loss, right? So, so they they from a risk management perspective, just seems to entirely miss the fact that companies uh, predictably were going to need to start drawing out, withdrawing their deposits from the bank to fund their operations because. That's what was going on in the marketplace. So SVB misread its customers' cash needs, and risk management seemed to be an afterthought. In fact, last year, the bank didn't even have a risk management officer for eight months during the last fiscal year. So as customers asked for their money, Silicon Valley Bank had to sell some of this long-term paper that they were locked into. Uh, $21 billion, in fact, uh, underwater, longer-term assets with an average interest rate of around 1.8%. And the bank lost about $1.8 billion on that trade, selling off their long-term paper just to give, you know, allow depositors to withdraw their funds. They lost $1.8 billion. And 
they went to the market like in a rush last week to try to raise $2 billion to fill that hole. But they entirely screwed up that raise. The communications on it was terrible. The CEO of Silicon Valley Bank did the old public announcement, nothing to see here, nothing wrong, you're going to be fine, which never works. It's just a red flag. And that's what caused this old-fashioned run on the bank where all these venture capital private equity companies and companies with significant uh, uh, cash reserves that were just using this for their normal bank started trying to get their cash out. And before you knew it, Friday afternoon, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation took over and and put the receiver in and just put a stop to everything. Now, the, the FDIC provides insurance to depositors to a limit of $250,000, okay? That's what that insurance product is. Don't assume if you're in a Canadian audience or an international audience, which I know we have, that it's the same in your jurisdiction. It's not. It's country by country or jurisdiction by jurisdiction, depending on how your financial institutions are regulated. But FDIC in the U.S. is $250,000 cap on the insurance, which means what? It means that so Friday, all of these companies had their and, and individuals, by the way, small people, re, like in, in the banking world, the retail people, but just normal mums and pops and middle income America has their personal bank accounts there as well. It's all frozen. But you would expect that within a couple of days, very quickly, the receiver would pay out up to $250,000, the amount of money that you're you're owed from your account. And you could tell them where to put it into a new bank account and they would deposit whatever you're owed uh, from your from your account into this new account at a new bank. But the the uninsured deposits, like the amount over $250,000, for example, if you have $3 billion, uh, like that one company did, the $250,000 is not going to help you very much. Well, those would be frozen. And since the, um, sorry, just getting notifications here, I should have turned off. And since the, the company had taken a significant loss trying to sell off its long-term fixed paper, right? Remember the $1.8 billion loss? Well, since it, it took a loss on that, you would expect that maybe, maybe those deposit holders above the 250 are not going to get 100 cents on the dollar. Because at the end of the day, all deposits in a financial institution in the U.S. and in Canada are, in effect, unsecured creditors. Okay, They don't have priority. They're not secured by the assets directly. If there's not enough assets, you're going to take a loss. And the insurance of FDIC, there's a similar product in Canada. The insurance is capped at the $250,000, which is why some high net worth individuals go out of their way to spread the accounts across various institutions. Okay, so that is sort of the context, the background of what Silicon Valley Bank is. And as of Friday, there is no more Silicon Valley Bank. The receiver stepped in, everything's frozen. They literally changed the name of the bank. It's called something else now, I forget. And um, on the weekend, on Twitter, everybody in the universe of Silicon Valley and many financial Wall Street people were freaking out, just freaking out. Not because they're going to lose their own money, which caused them to freak out. Not because there's hundreds of small tech companies, just normal entrepreneurs trying to run a business who lost access to their cash to make payroll. That's a horrible thing, right? But also because of the systemic risk, the systemic risk that, that is possible and the contagion throughout the whole banking system, right? What if we wake up Monday morning and everybody thinks to themselves, holy crap, I didn't know I could lose my deposits. And then there's a run on every regional bank in the US, which is a very fragmented, a very fragmented banking system. That's one of its uh, strengths, but also one of its risks. And what if everybody just woke up and said, well, I'm gonna withdraw all my money from this regional bank and send it to one of the one of the big three or four or five banks, which I feel might be safer. Right then, you're going to have a run on a whole slew of banks, and the whole system's going to fall apart. Does this sound any? Those of you that are old enough to remember, does this sound anything like 2008 uh, with the financial crash? I mean, this is this is eerily similar 
to that. So a tweet from Mark Cuban on a series of points, uh, which I thought were smart and interesting. Number one, he says 250000 is too low. This is for the this is for the insurance product. It's insane that a small company with, say, $2.5 million in payables and a payroll at the end of the month should be prudent, air quotes, and split their cash across 10 banks in case of a run on the banks. The fees and a min would be crazy, but great for banks. It's true. It's true. You can't possibly, in today's age of KYC, know your client, uh, compliance, administrative burden. It's just nonstop. In my companies, collectively, we deal with... Uh, one, two, three, four, five banks in three countries right now. And I've done banking in probably 25 countries in the world. But right now we're five banks in three countries, I believe something like that. And it's just nonstop. Like it's, it's, it's a quarter of my day every single day dealing with banking issues. You know, if you're just a normal company, as Mark says, at 2.5 million in payables, and you're trying to split things across 10 banks, to make sure that you're safe on a bank run and you're in with this $250,000 insurance level, it's not practical. And he's right about that. His point number two, where were the regulators? They're supposed to watch and warn. Well, true enough, a fair enough criticism. But what exactly in this case were the regulators going to see? I mean, anybody could have done the math that if you had these long-term assets that dominated your balance sheet and that they were going to drop in value as interest rates rise, right? So you're going to have these mark-to-market losses and then actual losses when you need to sell them for your liquidity. Well, a regulator could see that and could ask questions. I have no evidence that the regulator didn't see that. It didn't ask questions. But what I don't know is how a regulator would have been able to forecast the cash needs of the depositors, of the companies themselves, right? particularly when the narrative coming out of Washington is the economy's awesome, everything's fine. I think this is a really important part of this story because this whole collapse is a counter-narrative issue, which is why it's so political and so interesting. And so I don't know that a regulator would have been able to look at that financial filings uh, of this bank and said to themselves, well, you know, the needs of the uh, the needs of the board of the depositors are going to be to start withdrawing out of their cash accounts, and that's going to put pressure on this bank. I, I don't know that that's a realistic criticism. And in any event, it doesn't get us anywhere. Mark's third point, he can't wait to see how many people yank their money out, told others to do the same, and therefore inciting a run on the bank is his point, and then shorted the stock or the other way around shorted the stock, pulled all their money out, told other people to do the same. 100% that happened. I have zero doubt. I have zero evidence, but I have zero doubt that happened. And by the way, you're going to see management sold all their stock long in advance of this as well, or shortly in advance of this as well. We're going to talk more about that later. Uh, Mark says that the Fed should immediately buy all the securities out of the bank. Uh, he sh- they should pay it at par. So he's saying the Fed's, the government should buy this long-term paper. And when they do that, that Silicon Valley Bank would therefore have the cash and therefore they'd be able to facilitate the withdrawals and the payouts to the deposit holders, right? Any losses for uh, that? So if there was, say, uh, a loss because of things that had already occurred, that could be picked up by the new purchaser of these assets. And that's probably fair enough. And that the Fed needs to own their regulatory problem. Again, I'm not really buying, not really buying that. But here's, I think, the important part. He says that this would not be a bailout, this plan of the Fed's buying out all that long-term paper at 100 cents of the dollar. He's saying the Fed is effectively providing cash to end the run on banks, right? Because he fears like everybody else. And I think this is an overblown fear, but he fears like everybody else. Uh, in the tech business, that this is going to cause uh, contagion, a run on the banks uh, everywhere. And the feds, by buying out this paper at 100 cents of the dollar, um, would get these long-term assets. And like I said, if it's a 10-year piece of paper, 10 years from now, it would it would mature and they'd get their money back. Taxpayers would not be on the hook for anything other than opportunity cost. It may even provide some positive return. If they did that, 
Silicon Valley Bank could survive and there'd be no run on other banks and everybody uh, would be fine. So that was Mark's point of view. And I think there's a lot of great points in there for everybody to consider. Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, who is a Republican candidate uh, running for, uh, looking to be nominated to lead the party and to run for president, who himself, I don't believe he's a Silicon Valley guy, but he is a successful tech entrepreneur who's made a bunch of money and is an extraordinarily bright conservative individual, as near as I can tell. He says there's something very ugly happening right now. VCs, venture capitalists, and startup executives who stand to lose their deposits at SVB are going out of their way to push a narrative that there'll be a bank run on Monday if SVB depositors aren't bailed out by the government, which is exactly what Mark Cuban was saying should happen. They're yelling fire in the proverbial theater, hoping that everyone runs and knocks down a candle on their way out, actually starting the fire that may not otherwise have existed. Just remember that Remember that everything in the economy is confidence-based, right? That's the most important economic measure always. Do you, as a, as a participant in the economy, have confidence in the economy? And if you do, you feed the beast. You, uh, you borrow money, you spend money, right? And that keeps the economy growing and turning. If you don't have confidence, you go, oh boy, I guess what I better do is start saving and cutting my expenses. And all of a sudden, you start driving the economy down. The economy is just a great big confidence machine, right? And, and so just remember that as he talks about that. If you, even if there's fundamentally nothing wrong with the banking system, if everybody loses confidence all at once because the smart people like Mark Cuban, um, the hedge fund guy in uh, New York, uh, whose whose name is escaping me, uh, uh, Ray Daly. Is that his name? Dalio. Ray Dalio. Yeah. I mean, just all over Twitter all weekend saying we're all doomed uh, come Monday if the government doesn't bail us out. So he's saying that they're actually causing this um, by yelling fire in the theater. They're causing this problem. What they're doing, he says, is skipping the fact that SVB's situation is unique. Staggering 89% of his deposits were uninsured, way higher than normal banks. And they didn't hedge interest rates uh, risk, which is a cardinal sin given the portfolio they had. We already talked about that. They didn't hedge the fact that they had this long-term paper and short-term liabilities in the sense that they have to give their money back to depositors when they ask for it. And they didn't hedge their interest rate. I did that. The real hedge was their real hedge was this is an interesting point here was to spend dollars to become popular in the right influential circles of their own depositors pledging 5 billion dollars in 2022 to sustainable finance and carbon neutral operations to support a healthier planet he says maybe that hedge will pay off for the depositors if the government bails, bails them out but that should really trigger and occupy Silicon Valley of historic proportions. <laughs> he says, here's the right answer. <clears throat> no depositor amnesty for SVB depositors. Let SVB fully fail. So he's saying, unlike Mark, who says, you know, buy the paper at par so the, so the receiver or the bank gets all the money and then can use that money to pay depositors all of their money back, all of the deposits back, 100 cents on the dollar, like right away. Um, what this fellow, uh, uh, Vivek is saying is don't give them their money back. Just let the process, uh, work it out and they're going to take a loss potentially, or maybe the assets, you know, magically or, or the whole bank is sold to somebody else and these depositors can get a hundred cents of the dollar, or maybe they get 10 cents of the dollar. It just depends on the liquidation is what he's saying. He said the FDIC should get out of the way and let whoever wants to acquire SVB to actually do the deal Monday morning. And then he addresses this systemic contagion within the system issue. He says, and this is a, a hugely important point and was my initial thinking as well um, when I was thinking about this today, is increase the FDIC guarantee to, say, $10 million for all banks 
and that will prevent a run on the other bank. Because if you have a, if you're just reading in the news what's going on at Silicon Valley Bank, and you're sitting at some other bank, let's say uh, BMO Harris in the in the Midwest, and you is that the name of that bank? Yeah, Harris Bank, right? No, no, that's not the right. Well, anyways. Let's just say BMO Harris or uh, First West. That's the name I was looking for uh, in the Midwest. And you're like, oh, First West is now owned by BMO. So that's pretty large. But I don't know. Maybe I want to go to a larger platform. And then you see the federal government came out with really a huge guarantee on your deposits and you have zero risk. Well, you're just going to say, cool, I don't have to worry about this particular issue. And so that would work. It would stop the contagion. It would stop the fear of the spreading to other banks while at the same time having a penalty to to Silicon Valley Bank and to its depositors who didn't mitigate their risk. As he says, Silicon Valley is pushing the idea that SVB depositors need to be rescued to prevent a run on other banks. Wrong. If you want to prevent a run, other banks increase the FDIC guarantee. But SVB screwed up by utterly failing to take interest rate risk into account in two ways, both in terms of client concentration risk among startups and investing in interest rate sensitive securities. So did the many startups who blithely did business with them. It's not the U.S. taxpayer's job to now coddle them. Well, do you agree with that? Here you've got Mark Cuban saying, the Fed should buy all that paper at 100 cents on the dollar, even though it's not worth that today. Uh, but it will be worth that when it matures, say, 10 years from now. So the taxpayers are fronting this under his plan, but they get all their money back and a small return. Um, but there is no penalty. There's a penalty to the shareholders and the management team of SVB because that company's gone no matter what. Right? Shareholders lost all their value. I should have looked up the market cap last Wednesday for you. I didn't get around to doing that in my rush and my haste here. but. But it was a lot, and now it's gone. So the equity holders lost, the management team loses. The question is really then twofold. Should depositors lose their money, and should how do we stop contagion? So both Mark and Vivek have a plan to stop the contagion and the, the run on other banks on Monday morning, tomorrow morning. Uh, one of them wants the deposit holders at SVB directly to get all their money back. And one of them wants to send a message to deposit holders that deposits are, are um, unsecured debt, basically. And for the startups who, as he said, blithely did business with them, they shouldn't be relying on US taxpayers to coddle them. <laughs> I have to say that my initial reaction to this with Viv- was uh, with Vivip. But I also need to say that if it was my money and my company's money at Silicon Valley North, uh, sorry, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, I would feel much differently about that. I think with my with my heart, I'm with Vivek, uh, but with with my head, I'm with Mark. I think Mark's plan was really good. And then you got this third angle from a fellow named David Sachs. If you haven't heard of him, him, I believe. He's a venture capitalist, and I believe – I don't have his full bio, well, any of his bio. I had never actually heard of him, but I believe he was one of the original partners with Elon Musk in PayPal. Uh, anyways, very wealthy guy. And his angle on this is everything needs to be saved at Silicon Valley Bank. And I'm going to guess that he has a bunch of money at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, but everything needs to be saved. Otherwise, the whole system's going to fall apart. He was another one you know, whose hair was on fire over this weekend on that point. But he had a culture war take on this. He says, he says the whole issue is like uh, GPT. That's the, uh, the artificial intelligence that I've talked about on this show many times before. He says, it's like GPT was told to write a formulaic populist class warfare rant. A populist class warfare rant without even, without even understanding the particulars. SVB has 40,000 small business customers who are impacted. If this was Farmer's Bank, there is no Farmer's Bank, that was in air quotes, but if this was Farmer's Bank, you would understand the risk of contagion. It will be obvious soon enough. So his, his point was he can't believe the hatred that is being spewed 
by the rest of America, or at least half of America, at Silicon Valley. And, you know, talk about a guy that lives in a bubble. I can't even imagine why someone in Silicon Valley, if they got out of their bubble and looked at diverse news sources, um, would be shocked that half the country hates them. I mean, that just seems so obvious to me. I'm not saying that's right, by the way. I think Silicon Valley has been a wonderful place, and I think that they get they get some significant, well-earned criticism, but I don't think they get enough uh, applause either. But if you're a central leading figure in that world, and you don't understand that a good chunk of the country doesn't like you very much and would love to see you fail, and that you've earned that, you've earned that with that part of the country, well, then then you're just in a bubble and you've got a problem. And my second point to him, I said, you know, he shouldn't be surprised that a major part of the country hates him. My second point was, if this really was Farmer's Bank and not Silicon Valley Bank, if it really was Farmer's Bank, we wouldn't have heard about the story, period. It wouldn't be covered in the news. No one in Silicon Valley would care. No one in the media would care if this was Farmer's Bank, which is the whole point about why these people don't like you. Okay, that just seems to be lost on that crowd. But there is a political class warfare, cultural warfare angle to this story, which really confuses the whole picture. I want to just, so that's the context of everything, help you try to think about, you know, what's right and wrong at the end of the day. At the end of the day, focus on two things. If you want to know what the right policy should be or not should be, number one, most important, contagion. Does this spread throughout the whole system? Do you believe that's a real risk? And if you do, what would you do about it if you were a leader? And I think, you know, uh, Vivek and Mark both presented options for that. One is, you know, have the government offer large insurance guarantees to every other institution to settle that problem. And Mark said, you know, buy this, buy this paper out right away at 100 cents on the dollar, and then there is no, no problem, okay? So that's number one. And number two is, should the Zil- Silicon Valley Bank specific depositors lose their money for having way too much money into one financial institution and for not undergoing risk management? I can see arguments both ways, okay? And you've seen that in Mark Cuban and Vivek Ramaswamy. I can never say his name unless I have it written in front of me, Um, but they've presented two sides of that. A couple more observations I want you to think about. There is a difference. This is a lesson from this. There's a difference between illiquid and negative equity. That's true at a bank, but it's also true at a company. You You can be asset rich and cash poor. This bank, if it had just sat on its long, had the option of sitting on its long-term paper and not trying to sell it at a discount into the market to raise cash today to give the depositors the money that is properly depositors' money, they wouldn't have a problem. They have the equity, they have the assets, but what they don't have is the liquidity. They don't have the cash, and uh, that's that's a major difference. And it's a major difference in companies. Well. It's a it's an issue that I have to struggle with in my companies all the time because we buy trouble companies and they don't often have cash flow. Okay, if you're in the real estate business or anything that's asset rich, you may have a bunch of assets, but you may not have cash. And if interest rates and your payment streams go against you, you could and you can't borrow on those assets. You could be in trouble, even though oh look over here, I have all this value but it's not helping me right now, okay? There's a difference between uh, having assets and having liquidity. Second lesson here, I think for everybody right down to, you know, the main street, mom and top, pop to the retail bankers, just somebody with a checking account, bank deposits are unsecured loans to a bank. That's what they are. You're insured by the FDIC in the US up to $250,000. So if you have 50 grand in a real bank, that has FDIC insurance, you may lose that money for a few days if that bank goes down, but you'll get it back, right? That's what that insurance product is for. But if you're a company with $3 billion in one bank account, you're not doing your job properly. Just know 
that bank deposits are unsecured loans to a bank. Everything over the insurance level is unsecured. But is it? But is it really unsecured? I mean, it is in the system. The system is it's unsecured and you have the insurance. If that wasn't the system, why would FDIC exist and why would it have a cap of $250,000? That makes no sense. That is the system, except if the government steps in every time there's a failure in the system to give the deposit holders their money back, what's the system really, right? So again, this comes back to should deposit holders be protected? And at the end of the day, I just think of I just think of those 40,000 or several hundred, whatever they are, small businesses. I don't know why there was such a gap in that information. We have a lot of fog of war on this story as well, where people are shooting out information all over the place and who the hell knows what's exactly accurate and not. But there's lots of small businesses. I just think about them. I think about them having a million dollars in their account or two and a half, as Mark Cuban said, and they have to make payroll. I mean, how the hell can they do a financial analysis on their bank's balance sheet to decide the risk, to decide the risk through proper risk management analysis of that financial institution. They don't have a hope in hell. Wall Street doesn't hope in hell. Nobody has a hope in hell of doing that analysis and making the right decision. I've banked all over the world. I've been all over the world with clients, setting up banking arrangements for them and international structure. I used to have to deal with this question every day. Who is this bank? What is their capital? What is the risk of them going under, Scott? It's a very difficult job. You're running a little business in Ohio uh, and you're, you're banking at Silicon Valley Bank. You have zero hope of figuring that out. And now you lose all your money. Is that fair? Is that a good system? I don't think that it is. But remember, deposits are unsecured. And, the, and whether you get your money back beyond the insurance, I think the lesson of this is it entirely lies in politics. If you're Silicon Valley Bank and the Democrats are in control, do you think you're going to lose your money? If you're Farmers Bank and the Republicans are going to, and the Republicans are in control, you're probably not going to lose your money as a deposit holder. But flip that around. Flip that around. Would, would the Republicans care about Silicon Valley? Well, I think Vivek answered that question for us. Would the Democrats care about Farmers Bank? that hypothetical bank that we've talked about. Well, you can make your own decision on that. To me, it just seems clear that it wouldn't even make the news and no one would care. So that's point number two. Um, let's talk about ESG, point number three. ESG is something you, what is ESG? First of all, for those of you that don't know, environmental, social, and governments. Silicon Valley Bank was huge into ESG. Remember Vivek's point about them committing billions and billions, what did he say, 20-odd billion dollars in 2022, something like that, to ESG. Environmental, social, and government refers to three non-financial factors that can be used to inform the long-term risk and return of investment. ESG, as a financial metric, is something you do when you don't think you have any other real problems to deal with, okay? And if you're investing or depositing money with an institution or you're investing in a company that is primarily ESG-focused, you need to recognize that and beware because that is a company that's focused on environmental, social, and governments and not necessarily on other real financial metrics of risk management and making money. And what you'll find is that when the crap hits the fan, so to speak, all that ESG stuff immediately goes out the window. It just goes out the window because it's something that you can afford to do and care about. Um, maybe you really care about it. Maybe you're just signaling that you care about it for your deposit holders, for your, for your fitting into your community as in Silicon Valley. I'm not, I'm not saying it's disingenuous. I'm just saying whatever the reason. It's something you care about when you don't have bigger problems to care about. And that's just a fact. You want evidence? Before the collapse of SVB, the executives of SVB sold lots of their shares into a market at a high when they knew for a fact everything was going to 
crater and their shares were going to be worth zero. That's the G part of ESG, by the way. That's the governance part. Gregory Baker, our Becker CEO, sold 11% of his holding, which I understand was worth millions and millions of dollars on February 27. Michael Zucker, general counsel, 19% of his holdings on February 5th. Daniel Beck, CFO, sold 32% on February 27. By the way, I understand this guy was also a senior executive at Lehman Brothers when that went bankrupt. So he's on a he's on a roll. Uh, Michael Draper, CMO, sold uh, probably, what's that, CMO management? Uh, I don't know what that one is, but CMO sold 25% of his holdings on February 1st. So these guys take millions off the table personally in February, and here we are early March, and that company is, that bank is gone. It's bankrupt. That's a direct hit on the G part of ESG. And just know that when the crap's hitting the fan, if you're an investor, or in this case, a deposit holder, and you you're, have exposure to a counterparty, to a company that's very ESG-focused, all right, you can't rely on that. That just means that they haven't got anything bigger to think about right now. And there's all sorts of studies coming out that negatively cor- correlate returns with ESG, right? So the, the more the company is into ESG, the less money it makes. And not because of spending money on ESG, but because the focus of management is on things that don't make money or protect the investment of, of their investors. Uh, four, uh, in terms of my observations, follow the money. If you want to know how bad a situation is, are you going to lose all your cash? You know, follow the money. There's always a market for bankruptcy claims. So when a company, when a receiver is appointed and the receiver, one of the things they do, the first things they do, they put a stop to everything. They make a list of everybody that that bankrupt company owes money to, or in this case, the bank and receivership owes money to, which would include all the deposit holders. So they make a list. And and they go through a claims process. So as a deposit holder, you would or a creditor of a bankrupt company, you would have to fill out a claim form and send it in. Yeah, these people owe me uh, $3,000, whatever it is. Well, that's a claim. There is a very active market, particularly in the U.S., a secondary trade market on claims, meaning on, on these claims, which means that someone else will come along to you and say, hey, this company owes you $3,000. I'll pay you $2,000 now to buy your $3,000 claim because I think that you need the $2,000 now. Okay, so you took a $1,000 loss, but I paid $2,000 for a $3,000 claim. And I think that, you know, three, four, six months from now, I'll get most of that $3,000 back and I made a profit, right? So people buy these sorts of claims. And and then there's a whole other game about buying a lot of those claims. So now you become a significant voter in a bankruptcy, right? And you're able to aggregate all of that power and influence your return or negotiate your return to be higher than it might otherwise be. Well, it was reported today. It was reported today that the hedge funds funds have stepped in over the weekend and they're paying out, they're buying claims, deposit claims, from Silicon Valley bank depositors for 90 cents of the dollar. So if you're a company and you've got a million dollars on deposit at the bank and you don't have it for payroll Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, next week, you sell that to the hedge fund, 90 cents of the dollar. So you get 900,000 in cash. You took a $100,000 loss, right? But you got $900,000 in cash. You can go about your business and suck up the $100,000 loss. The hedge fund paid $900,000 in cash and got a million-dollar claim, a deposit for a million dollars that is now due to them from this process. So now one might ask themselves, why the hell would a sophisticated hedge fund take that risk to pay $900,000 for a million-dollar deposit? Is it because they're willing to roll the dice and expect that maybe they'll get less than $900,000? Or do maybe they know something that we don't know? Follow the money if you want to know how bad things are in a, in a bankrupt situation. I had sent a tweet uh, in reply to the announcement of this. So somebody had, uh, I forget who it was on Twitter, but somebody had, you know, breaking news, 
hedge funds are buying out these claims at 90 cents on the dollar. And then a million people like, why would they do that? The whole world's falling apart. And I said, if you were a large Democratic, so the Dem Party supporter, if you were a large supporter and you knew from the inside that a bailout was coming this week under the guise of systemic risk, you'd pay 90% and make 10% over the weekend too. Okay. So if you knew, because you're all part of this tight little circle, that a bailout was coming and there was no way deposit holders were going to lose their cash, but you found some small little company who's panicking that they're not going to make payroll this week and you give them the $900,000 and then Monday, Tuesday, the government steps in with the bailout and you get a million back. You made a hundred grand over the weekend. Do that a bunch of times. You start making some real money in your weekend and on a percentage basis, the return on that is pretty big. Well, sure enough, sure enough, by the end of the day today from the Wall Street Journal, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve stepped in late Sunday to contain the financial damage from Friday's closure of Silicon Valley Bank. They're guaranteeing even uninsured deposits and offering loans to other banks so they don't have to take losses on their fixed income assets. So, They're increasing the insurance, so all the deposit holders at Silicon Valley Bank are 100% covered, which the hedge funds buying the claims at 90 cents of the dollar would have predicted that, as I pointed out in advance, part of myself for that one. And in addition, other financial institutions, other banks that had bought this long-term paper and are about to be in the same problem... The, the feds, the federal government has offered them loans so they don't have this sort of problem. So they're not actually buying the paper, according to this article, as Mark Cuban has suggested. They're lending against that paper so that the liquidity the liquidity is not a problem. Um, this is a de facto, according to the Wall Street Journal. This is, by the way, uh, Janet Yellen and uh, I believe Biden is doing a press release on this or a, a press conference on this tomorrow. But they said it's not a bailout. It's going to cost the taxpayers nothing, nothing. And presumably that's because 10 years from now, when the paper is, uh, you know, expires and the cash comes in, it pays back the loans of the federal government and taxpayers get a whole. According to the Wall Street Journal, this is a de facto bailout of the banking system, even as regulators and Biden officials has been telling us that the economy is great and there was nothing to worry about. The unpleasant truth, which Washington will never admit, is that SVB's failure is the bill coming due for years, years of monetary and regulatory mistakes. All right, that's it for tonight. I wanted to give you an overview of this huge breaking story in financial markets, give you some context try to explain the different points of views from you know, significant leaders and influences in the uh, U.S. financial world and political world and give you something to think about. I mean, what do you think? Should deposit holders get all their money back or should the system be rigidly adhered to, which means they're unsecured debt insured to 250000 and everything above that is a crapshoot, could be a loss if the assets if the assets are not there. Something to think about. Thank you for listening. This has been the Winning Momentum Podcast. And this show is going to be out a little bit early. And then I'm off for a week. If there's updates during this week while I'm traveling for March break with uh, my family, I will try to do some shorts uh, on YouTube, uh, TikTok, Instagram, on my social media. I'll try to get some shorts out with updates to the story. But honestly, I think this story is over. I think there was a huge... Huge kerfuffle. I think the federal government stepped in and fixed the problem, and there's lessons for all of us in that maneuver. Have a great night, and we'll talk to you next week.